Welcome to The Hammer and Quill, Season 2, Episode 8, an interview with Dr. Mark Lederbach on the future of theological training. Hey, we're here. I'm here with my, my fellow staff uh, and co-host here of The Hammer and Quill, Holly Paulette. Hi, everyone. <laughs> that pause was for you to say hi. And Michael Whirl. Oh, hello. And we are introducing this episode. This is our intro. Uh, and this is our first of five or six interviews about the future theological training. Uh, and so uh, we're excited. This is an e- excellent interview, some really interesting responses uh, by Dr. Mark Lederbach. Before we introduce him and before we uh, give you guys the interview, uh, Holly is going to kick us off with the what could best it be? question. <laughs> What has been your favorite thing? It's been a while since we've recorded, so I'll give you some I'll give you a, a broader frame, but in the last month. Favorite thing. Favorite thing in the last month. I, th- I think I know mine. Go for it. It's uh, I don't I don't know if this is my favorite fa- it's my favorite that it's done. Okay. We uh we built a fence around our garden. Emily maybe more than doubled our garden this year um, and built a big fence around it with uh, some some wire and wood posts and it, it looks pretty nice my um, my in-laws came I feel like I've shouted them out like a few times the last couple episodes but uh, Ken and Laura Boward shout out came and and helped us so um, yeah we we built built a big old fence and then um i built some garden boxes um next to the fence that kind of uh frame in our little playset. it looks pretty nice the whole the whole thing together is i i think i think uh emily did a good job envisioning and designing it i think it looks nice i hope that the house staff is going to reap the benefits of this garden i gardened last year for the first time which as you guys can probably guess did not go very well but um what but you've saved goats i have saved goats but couldn't really save tomatoes so Mm. emily send some with michael on Mm. tuesdays (laughs) Mm. you know um i i feel like i used up most of my favorite things on the last episode when i talked about seeing a mink (laughs) uh getting a getting to spend the weekend with jenny for our 19th and wedding anniversary uh my nick cage pillow yeah um so i'm 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 feeling a little bit like i've i've used them all up um can i give you a favorite thing you just yeah. had a monster rehab I, I, yeah. I had a monster rehab energy drink uh in the last month what about our bow valley vision trip meeting we just Ooh. had well, now I've got to say that, whether that was my favorite thing <laughs> or not. So uh, I, I will say that I'm really excited about this team of 17 adults and five children. We are insane to take 22 people uh, on a vision trip to the Bow Valley, but insane in a good way. Mm. So yeah, that's a, oh sure, that's my favorite thing. <laughs> I'm really, I am really looking forward to going up to the beautiful Bow Valley, Canmore, Banff, Exshaw, outside of Calgary to spend some time with our friends, Craig and Zoe Robinson. Hi, Craig. Hi, Zoe. Hi, Zoe. Hi, Hi Blythe. Blythe. And their, their daughter, Blythe. And Hi, the Kootenai. team at the Cairn. And their <laughs> bear dog. dog ever. Kootenai. How about you, Holly? Favorite thing? Well, after that meeting, I don't know if I'm more nervous about bringing my two-year-old to Canada or some of the people on our team who shared some things like how they um, 
take on the accent that they hear. So oh, no. and speak loudly. And speak loudly. So they 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 adopt the accent and speak louder uh, whenever they travel. We stole an icebreaker from <laughs> from our friends on a uh, crew staff here oh, at Radford. No. I'm not weird, but and mm. that came out and it made me a little nervous. But anyway, my um favorite thing is that uh, we I really don't follow any sports at all, but um, I'm so competitive. And so we've, we're watching the NCAA tournament, and which ended last night from the day we're recording. Um, and it's been really fun. My husband Morgan and I, I thought we're in a bracket challenge together. And um, so I was like keeping up with it on my, on my app and um, was trash talking. I was so excited because I was beating him according to my app. Because you were in first place. I was in first place. I was number one. And I was like, what can I get out of this? Like, (laughs) surely I can choose the next five restaurants we go to or something. Well, it turns out that Morgan did not submit his bracket to that competition. So he had beat me by a landslide. But you were first out of one. I was first out of one and I was proud of myself. So <laughs> it's really go Holly. <laughs> That's now one of my favorite things. <laughs> well, did you the, name your bracket? Um, Holly's championship bracket. Holly's bracket. Yeah. I think it was just Holly's bracket. It was just me by myself in this little competition that I thought I was in with Morgan. But congratulations to the Oh my goodness! I almost just said to the Tar Heels, but they did not win. So no. Rock Chalk um, Jayhawk, Jayhawks. Thank yeah. you. I didn't know what. They're, oh, yeah, sad. I sad. went to bed at Rip. halftime because I was like, certainly this is a blowout. I'm just done. Yeah, yeah. best comeback in the in the title title game in history. I think yep. at halftime. Well, one of my favorite things was interviewing Dr. Mark Lederbach, uh, a friend of the house. Uh, professor of ethics and philosophy and dean of students at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And this was a really fun Zoom interview where we kind of went all over the place. And uh, and so I think that you guys, friendos who are listening, will really enjoy this. So uh, tune in and we'll see you on the other side. See you on the other side. Well, I am so glad to be joined via Zoom with Dr. Mark Lederbach, who is joining from his study, his office at uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, where I received my Master's of Divinity and where I'm currently pursuing a PhD in pastoral theology. And sadly, I never had you for ethics or philosophy. It's really the one regret of my of my uh, master's degree is not having you because uh, your new book is fantastic, which we'll talk about here uh, at the end of our time. And uh, and we're so so um, excited to have you joining us in person to teach ethics in May. But before we get into all that, uh, Dr. Lederbach, would you mind introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about your work, your experience in theological training, and how you ended up at Southeastern? Sure, Jesse, wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's a privilege. I love the opportunity to interact with you guys. And uh, I love what's happening in the Bonhoeffer House. And I love my own college experience was shaped by uh, similar kinds of themes uh, with men and particular, but men and women who really love Jesus and wanted to press each other forward. As C.S. Lewis talks about that, where, you know, one of our great goals is not to argue against each other, but argue with each other towards truth and being with uh, like-minded people pursuing that. I, 
I'm excited and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to interact with folks. A um, little bit about my background. I grew up, uh, I'm the youngest of seven children in a Roman Catholic family. Grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, in that context, I, I had a, a strong moral core. Didn't really have an understanding of the gospel. It, it wasn't until I was in my early teen years that I heard through uh, another different ministry context, uh, the presentation of the gospel and understood that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I placed my faith in him. So we would describe that now from theological language, penal substitutionary atonement and Christ's work to rescue us. Um, from that point, I was involved with a lot of parachurch organizations in my formative years, young life. And then in college, I went on to James Madison University, where I met uh, some of the folks that are connected with Bonhoeffer House for the first time. And uh, I studied there and really majored in Campus Crusade for Christ, though, when I was there. And I eventually went on staff with crew and um, did that for four years. That's where I met my wife. After doing that for several years, went out to Denver Seminary, got my de master's degree in historical and theological studies. And then I pursued my PhD at the University of Virginia, where I finished with a degree in theology, ethics, and culture. That was in uh, 2020, or excuse me, in, in the year 2000. I've been here for 22 years now. I've been at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary for all those years. The kind of funny part about that is growing up Roman Catholic, Catholics think about Baptists like Baptists oftentimes think about Catholics. So I think my mom is probably rolling over in her grave that, that I'm now a professor at a conservative Southern Baptist seminary, but it's been a complete joy to be here. That's uh, really, you know, that's fun to hear. And I also grew up Roman Catholic outside of Washington. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was listening to you thinking, wow, that's a lot of similarities. Although I wasn't the last of seven. I was the first of uh, four. There's four uh, Fury boys out there. So uh, but yeah, I, I would just concur with you about the um, attitudes towards uh, Southern Baptists or Baptists. Um, and uh, and when you were at JMU, uh, go Dukes, you, is that where you met Alan James? That's right. Alan and I were, were roommates. So I'm a little bit older than Alan and we are, the house I lived in was running a Bible study and Alan showed up one night and it was a very quick and fast friendship. And then he and I were both discipled. Uh, by a staff member of Campus Crusade and did our first international travels together. So that's incredible. But he couldn't, he, he, uh, he was Southern Baptist all the way through though, wasn't he? Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. In fact, I, when he went off to seminary at Southeastern, I thought he was weird <laughs> <laughs> because I was, I was at that time, I didn't have really a category to think about theological education. I was just a, a Catholic kid that had been saved and wanted to share God, Jesus, share the gospel. And so, uh, yeah. going off the seminary seemed superfluous to me. And now I have a completely different perspective. So that might be helpful for some of the hearers to think of it. To hear yeah, that as, as a matter of fact, why don't we get into that? So why is theological education or theological training important? And who, who would you recommend would pursue, um, you know, maybe formal theological training? Yeah, that's a great question on both angles. I, uh, one of the transformation points that happened for me in my own life was Having been in a, a large institution like the Catholic Church, I kind of became um, disenchanted with all of the, the ritualism that was involved in my early years. And so when I was involved with, with uh, parachurch organizations, you know, you're kind of blowing and going and you're doing a lot of evangelism and you're discipling folks and everything's really exciting. But as I began to mature in my uh, understanding of the Bible, uh, it, one thing that becomes exceptionally clear is that God's chosen method for the people of Christ to journey together is the local church. And even though I probably had more affinity and more uh, 
desire, if you want to say it that way, to function within a parachurch organization. The fact of the matter is God chose the church in all of our brokenness. We get in the same boat together and we, and we try to uh, pursue the glory of God together. And so I, I think for me, what began to take place was uh, a maturation in how I understood the body of Christ, that yes, it's universal, but God specifically wants us to live that out within a local body where we become members. We give ourselves to that congregation. We place ourselves under the authority of the elders in that local congregation, and they, they look after our growth. So, um, so in that sense, Jesse, I would actually make the argument that there's two ways to look at something like theological education. Um, there's, there's a sense where anybody who has a, a ministry calling, if you want to use that language, although that can be sometimes uh, a little too mystical. So we can chat about that if you'd like for a minute about how I understand calling. Uh, but a calling it in a sense of a desire to have effectual ministry to people where you're in a leadership role, certainly then seminary is a great context for that. But my own perspective is that, in fact, this will be probably the initiative of the next maybe decade of my life, if Lord willing, is I really feel like we're losing something really crucial within evangelicalism. And that is the call for um, kind of a moral toughness and a ministerial rigor. Uh, that should be shared by everybody in the congregation. And I think COVID has really shown us we've become way too independent and too individualistic as opposed to be thinking about the kingdom of God first. So very specifically, it's my own, uh, in my own desire to see that every man in the church that I'm in is prepared to be an elder. And so the, the, the initiative is the elder initiative or every man an elder with the idea that while someone may actually never be called to the office of serving in it as an elder, Every man in my congregation should be prepared to step up. So with that in mind, then it could be the case that there's a lot of people that who would never go into full-time ministry, but that would find seminary education to be extremely helpful mm. in their own ability to live and, and worship the Lord in their local context. Now, in terms of how that practically would play out, would you envision there being, you know, you've got it. So imagine every man an elder, okay, or being trained and, and formed to be, be able to become one. Uh, are you imagining that every man then has access to, um, you know, traditional seminary opportunities or every man finishes a seminary degree? Or, or do you have more in mind that there's alternative options for them that, that connects them with institutions like Southeastern or other legitimate seminaries that doesn't require them to, to enroll full time? What, what do you have in mind there? Yeah, so uh, I'll give you a little bit of a, a left turn at Albuquerque answer and then bring it back in here on that. So Bugs Money reference for anybody who knows left turn at Albuquerque. Uh, when I was in college, I had one of my roommates, a really delightful guy. His name was Pete Hiskey. And Pete uh, was a good friend of Alan and I, mine. And, and uh, he went off to study for a semester and he lived with John Stott, studied under Stott and was mentored by him for a while. And Stott told Pete at and Pete came back and told the rest of us this, this little thought bomb that was really helpful. And that was the idea that Pete was in his early 20s at the time. And Stott told him that you really aren't going to hit your stride in ministry till you're about 40. And so everything you do between, you know, 18, 20, 25 and 40 is really important for the kingdom. But a big piece of that is training so that when you hit 40, you've still got 40 to 50 years of really strong ministry left. So I think there's a sense in which the way I would answer your question is, um, again, you don't have to have an interest in vocationally becoming a minister to want to be the kind of man who uh, embodies the character traits of an elder. 
Now, having said that, seminary can be a really key point for everybody. It should be some uh, for some, but uh, uh, a lot of the ways that training takes place is, again, through the local church, connecting yourself to pastors, elders, older leaders within the church who are taking you out to show you how to do evangelism, who are challenging you on how to uh, run small groups, who are encouraging your prayer life, your, your daily devotional life. And through time, what happens then, the qualifications of an elder begin to develop because most of them are virtues. They're character traits and dispositions of the person that, um, that as you grow in Christ-likeness, prepare you for the office. I love that answer. You know, one of the things we're thinking a lot about within the Bonhoeffer House is um, not just forming future leaders in and for the church, which is our mission, but that those leaders that we're forming um, have a sense of responsibility to train up the next generation in their own local churches so that, and the next generation doesn't just mean young people. It just means, uh, in, in our thinking, whoever the next people that God has called to lead are. And so, so you know, rather than having guys uh, and, and ladies who are serving in their local church and they're just, they're just there to serve, um, maybe, you know, I'm thinking about pastors who are just, they're just sort of, um, you know, uh, lack a sense of responsibility to, to train. We want to send people out there that are trainers, that are, are looking at this like, hey, you know, maybe not all, all of the folks in our, in our congregation can go to seminary or even have access to um, online seminary, you know, options, but, but it's, it's my responsibility to form them and train them and help them to become more virtuous so that they might step into roles of leadership. And so I love that answer. And uh, that actually ma it makes a good transition for us. I I'd love to know what you think some of the biggest challenges facing training institutions are now. So, um, you know, uh, maybe it's the challenge of, you mentioned individualism and, you know, certainly it, it's not just evangelicalism that is fracturing, but there is fracturing happening. And a lot of those fractures are happening, I think, because of uh, expressive individualism and the you know, um, and all that comes along with that, you know, there's kind of distrust of institutions that weren't there maybe 20 years ago. Uh, and so what do you see as some of the biggest challenges facing uh, theological training institutions? And, and how, how is that different than maybe 2000 when you started or, or when did you start at Southeastern? 1999, something like that? Yeah, I came in the summer of 2000. So how are things different now than then? Yeah. So um, I'm going to backtrack just a second to say one other thing about the previous answer, but it dovetails right into this sure. one, Jesse, and that is I've addressed largely this discussion so far, uh, men and my interest in training men for the pastor and that sort of thing. But I do want to mention for our ladies that may be listening, for the women that are tuning in, that, uh, that a lot of the same conversation about becoming an elder would, would fall into category of being a Titus II woman and becoming the kind of woman uh, whose virtues demonstrate Christ-likeness in a way that they can be shapers of culture and shapers of a local church within the appropriate boundaries of a complementarian worldview. And I, I think we don't want to denigrate that. In fact, um, some of our, you know, uh, many of the most important things that happen within a church, our, our ladies are carrying the water for that. And so we want to encourage that and do that. It's interesting that that dovetails into the seminary question because historically seminaries have been uh, largely dominated by male populations. But increasingly so, more and more women are coming to seminary. Um, and so one of the challenges that's related to that is even uh, women who are highly skilled, highly professionally trained, very intelligent, leaving 
and not really knowing exactly what what they're able to do within the local church setting. And so trying to help think through local churches, how they can employ women in their congregations to best serve the congregation. That's a that's a, one of the challenges we're facing at seminaries and trying to think that through. At Southeastern, we have a really strong core of women who are on our staff here who are really helping us think through some of those questions on that. I think, let me answer your question even a, a little bit by doing two categories, if I could real quickly. One of them, I think, is you could ask the question, the challenge of theological education from the point of view of the seminary, and then the challenge of uh, theological education in light of what's happening in the culture. So if I start with that second one, Jesse, yeah, I think Americans, uh, I think, are unaware of just how in, intensely um, boiled in the stew of enlightenment thinking that we are. One of the ways that's showing up um, is even just the way we've approached discussions like mask mandates. Um, I'm actually not going to make a comment on that particular topic here unless you want to discuss that. But what I'm more interested in is the way people are thinking about it and arguing about it within our culture. So let's pause that for a minute and just think, how has abortion been argued since Roe v. Wade um, 49 years ago? Largely, those who are pro-choice in our culture have made the argument, keep your laws off of my body. And the argument has been to a personal autonomy that says you can't do anything to my body that I don't want you to do to my body. And that's been the basis for pro-choice, pro-abortion argumentation. What, what concerns me about the way Christians are thinking right now is that's the exact same argument many of us are using for keep your vaccinations off my body or your mask off my body. And so for me, I think what's happening within the culture is that we're so stewed in kind of a individualism, utilitarianism, and an autonomy basis that we're almost forgetting how to lay down our rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters globally. Now, that, that, that can have a lot of different implications for masks and backs, and I don't want to go into that right now on that, but what we're noticing within the culture is when people come to Southeastern, um, they're so stewed within the cultural mindset of what it means to be an American that sometimes we forget that the Christian flag flies higher than the American flag. Ideally, they would be uh, held together, but when there's a conflict, we go with the Christian flag always. So that's probably something that we're aware of. I think a second thing I'm noticing as students come, they're a lot less biblically literate. When I had students show up 22 years ago, most of them would have a, a higher kind of fundamental knowledge of the Bible coming in. They, most of them would know the Ten Commandments by memory. Most of them would have memorized a lot of scripture. And now folks are coming in and there's much less kind of fundamental knowledge that's there. Um, do you want to comment on that? I can make some comments about from the seminary point of view, but no, I mean, I, I, the, I, that is sad, but true, you know, uh, being on staff with crew for a long time and, and 2000, I was, a I was a junior in college. Um, but I was on staff starting in 2002 and I, I would agree with that as far as, uh, the general kind of, uh, you know, and in, in some ways it's not it's not something that I would be frustrated with students about. It's something where it's like, there's a cultural failure behind you. Yep. Okay. Right. The, 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 the Bible into your life. It's just not there. That's right. Uh, you know, I, interestingly, I was reading, uh, recently Robert Nisbet, the sociologist who wrote the twilight of authority in 1975 hmm. talked about, um, uh, twilight ages throughout history, which are often followed by ages of, of revival revitalization but a twilight age is characterized by uh, decline in institutional trust 
an increase in the importance of individual egoism and performance and, mm. and estrangement from community. And, uh, yeah. man, if that doesn't just describe our kind of cultural moment now, almost yeah. 40 years later, uh, to a T, certainly I would think more than, than it was in 1975. So now I don't want to comment anymore. I think you nailed it as far as the cultural challenges. Uh, what do you think about institutionally, like from within Southeastern, uh, what are some of the biggest challenges that you see? Well, part of that is, is um, you know, uh, one of the jokes we make about evangelicals is that frequently the way we do training in evangelicalism is that we're preparing people for 20 years ago. And so <laughs> one of the things that we're trying to do is, is listen really well and pay attention to the cultural moment that we're in so that we're actually able to help our students face the issues that they're dealing with right now. And staying relevant all the time means that someone like myself, I'm a 58-year-old professor, I need to be in front of college students and non-believers hearing what they have to say. So one of the points of key relevance for any seminary to be uh, lively and vibrant is to have their professors in the word every day for their personal devotions and in the culture having conversations with people. Mm -hmm. And the, one of the things we always challenge ourselves with here is it's tempting to live within the bubble of a Christian world. And so to kind of get out and have those conversations so, for example, the very first thing that a student would do in my ethics class is I'll put in front of them a case study where they'll need to sit, uh, be in a small group for five or 10 minutes with four or five other people, their very first assignment, and ask, a, uh, try to work through a case study where they've run into someone from their high school reunion who's had a transgender surgery and are now want to know whether or not uh, the Bible has anything to say to them. So right off the bat, what we're wanting to do is, is help put people in context where they're actually experiencing in the world that they're living in and give them a safe environment in order to train them on how to think about that. So one of the, one of the great things about the seminary environment for a, uh, a lay person is that if you, in your local church, you're typically not going to have a focus on, say, learning systematic theology or learning how to do uh, ethics in a systematic way. So seminaries can help even the layperson by by kind of building a framework of how to think about the world. Mm. Um, but that is probably at the same time our greatest challenge to make sure that we're helping people to be relevant for the cultural moment that we're currently in. The other one is, I think, probably something you'll want to get into is the fact that we're in a digital world now, in a media-driven world. But that's a massive challenge for us because there's so much disinformation and so much poor thinking on social media that uh, you, can, you can start a rumor about a seminary or a professor. You could uh, read a blog and think that it actually has some backbone to it when it's actually just really poor thinking. So the challenges of how people are getting their information now are uh, a really big part of what it, uh, some of the challenges we're facing. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to get into that. And just to uh, affirm to me the idea of having professors within the training institutions who are uh, in the word daily and in the culture regularly feels like an important um, way forward for, for institutions. Um, yeah, let's talk about this, this kind of digital age, this age of information. You know, people can find, people can just Google whatever they want to Google and find out right. information. Uh, they may or may not know how to source that and how to tr figure out, is this a good source or a bad source? Um, and so what are some, maybe let's start with what's exciting about that. What, you know, we were actually talking before I hit record about how, um, you know, we couldn't do this if, you know, yeah. just five years ago we could, but I wouldn't have even thought about it, you know, Be but now that COVID hit and Zoom, 
you know, went through the, everybody's zoomed everywhere. Now we, now this is just something we can do from three and a half hours, uh, three and a half hours away. So what are some exciting opportunities that our digital age offers? Yeah. You know, theologically, when we think about, uh, media and technology, um, Technology in and of itself can be something that is, it's a product of God's created world. And so technologies are not negative. They're not uh, sinful in themselves. They're actually uh, a part of God's providential care for humans. And then as we grow and uh, become more adept at uh, mining God's wondrous world, technologies grow. The problem is not the technology, it's the way we as sinners use technologies. So that can be done well in a redemptive manner, or it can be done very destructively. And I think what we're seeing is both are in play when you think about even how it impacts the world of theological education. You think about something exciting about that. We, we have online programs where you can have a live telecast with a professor from their office in the United States and be training people in closed countries around the globe uh, under encrypted um kind of uh, platforms so that theological education from some of the most educated people in the world is being um, being dispersed into places where you you'd be shocked at you know there's a there's an internet council console in anywhere in the world within a you know places you can go and find so we can train people and I've actually been involved in some training and in, in, I can't mention the countries but some of the most closed countries in the globe where people are interacting with me on particular topics through a translator um, but what's also great about that, Jesse, is the, the re response that I get. I learn far more about the world and what's happening in the world, and it, and it shapes me as a theologian as I start hearing from somebody in, in closed country in a 1040 window or in somewhere in Asia. So there's a real dynamic back and forth that can happen, and those, those are incredible opportunities uh, to see things that take place. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. And, and, and uh, it, it strikes me too, thinking back to um, even just 10 to 15 years ago, where uh, you may be able to get videos out, but you couldn't do what we're doing here. You couldn't, you couldn't actually, you, basically, it's, it was only a one way communication. Yeah. And that feels exciting. Like even for um, some of my, my students within the Bonhoeffer house, they're not having to just watch video lectures. Now they can have Zoom interactions with professors. So professors uh, don't, you know, or, or uh, trainers aren't removed by distance and the fact that they're not able to be engaged with, but you can engage. Yeah. And, and I love hearing that. I, I didn't even think about that, that, you know, in closed countries, you can have a direct, almost unmediated. I mean, it's through the media of, of Zoom or, or whatever, you know, WhatsApp, whatever yeah. you're using there, but uh, actually interfacing with people sounds it's that's really exciting well if you take even take something like um you could take a thumb drive into say north korea or iran or uh china and that might have an entire theological library on it and someone then could use google translate to to help work through that even if they didn't have a, a the ability to read english and so um yeah, some of that, it's just stunning to think through that. All those books behind you and me on our Zoom right now, all of that could be in something smaller than a thumb drive, and you can give that away. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of neat opportunities. Some of the negative pieces of that, obviously, are uh, there is a sense in which um, there is a, a negative momentum that's built easier on the social medium, social media platforms. When somebody has followers... And they start making comments that, uh, for whatever reason, Americans have started to become addicted to kind of smackdown talk. 
and um, and it's it's there are places for rebukes and there's places for reproofs and the the scriptures are very clear about that, but the way that we've kind of become addicted to uh, word sound bites that are putting people down without careful thinking or even theological charity, um, they gather momentum and so you have people. Um, that are being vilified or even institutions that are being vilified without any substantive arguments or proof behind that. And that's really dangerous. It's, and I think for us in our congregation, shame on us if we hear somebody uh, popular say something in 250 characters and you don't do enough work to see, find out if actually what was said was true. Um, and so I, I think that's one of the dangers is that we have to learn as the scriptures tell us to be diligent, to show ourselves approved unto God who handle accurately the word of truth. And uh, sometimes the social media momentums um, are really dangerous. And we start believing things without actually giving the benefit of doubt to someone who's got 20 or 30 years of orthodox evangelical ministry. And then all of a sudden someone tweets something and says they're woke or something like that. And, not, you know, and, and all of a sudden uh, doubt is cast upon a, a whole lifetime of faithful ministry. Yeah, you know, it's it's um, it's still it's always so shocking to me when I watch some of those kind of um, exchanges. And and I do have some friends who are who are like internet famous who actually get attacked in ways that are like, you know, I'll look at their pride. They'll show me things where I'm like, how could how could somebody say that? Yeah. And and, and what's more, how could this Christian person so bra brazenly break the eighth commandment it's like they don't not only do they not it, it just it's it's wild it's yeah. it's wild west and it's uh it's not it's not form it's not virtue forming for the most part that kind of stuff i agree with you how about um how as we kind of uh close our time here when we think about institute training institutions addressing these sorts of um media opportunities and challenges how do we how do institutions maintain commitments? Um, how do we make sure that we don't get swept up with uh, maybe, you know, bad use of technology or trying to stay relevant so so much that, you know, maybe we go too far? Do you have advice there? Yeah, we're, we're even here at Southeastern. We're really trying to wrestle through some of that. We could go in a ton of different directions with that uh, question that you asked me. That one of the things that we're always asking here is how do we stay mission driven. So for us, the Great Commission is the clarion call of our school. We want to do every classroom as a Great Commission classroom. And we we not only say that often, but our professors are on the mission field. We're out doing evangelism. We want our students to see us doing that and talk with us about doing that. But any institution is going to have the tendency to, um, to drift from that, to get lazy in some of those things. And any institution is also going to find that uh, when you're competing for students, the temptation is to lower your standards in order to get more students in. And so uh, you have to be committed to keeping the main thing the main thing. And as simple as that sounds, it's incredibly difficult for, or for institutions to do that. So you have to hire people very diligently. You have to uh, trumpet forth your core values, like our mission statement, and then the values of the kind of people we want working for us. And so all of those are really a crucial piece of that. So specifically to your question, the danger is um, when we want to increase our platform in terms of digital 
or distance learning, to use the language we use, we also want to not water down theological education and the, and the importance of being in community to learn theological education. So while it's helpful that you can talk to an individual somewhere around the globe, you really hope that individuals with 10 other people who are doing theology together. So it's one of the reasons, for example, doing distance with the Bonhoeffer House is one of our more exciting places is because we know in that context, you've got people who are then shutting off the video and having conversations and thinking through, okay, did, what, you know, the first Thessalonians approach, or excuse me, Acts 17 approaches, are, are those folks teaching us what is true? And, and how do we evaluate that from the standard of the Bible? And, and you guys in the house are going to work that out, right? So we're hoping that the, that there'll be micro communities that are orthodox and they'll come and get the best training they can, but then evaluate that in light of the truth of scripture. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Of course, that's why I am directing the Bonhoeffer house, but, uh, you know, we are, we're hoping to step into that kind of, um, cause it, it is a challenge institutionally, right? You've got an opportunity through distance learning through digital media to bring on more and more students, but the challenge, the temptation would be to um, lower the not just the theological standards. I mean, you, you could we could we could take your class, which is just as excellent as it is in person in, in terms of content. But if it's only if it's only being engaged with one guy in his basement, you know, and he's we, we do the best we can with that with through like, you know, uh, chat rooms and different things. But but being able to, to then turn it off, like you said, and then in, in the presence of other people who are taking that class and learning together, um, and, and ideally with a mentor who can kind of guide them in the field, you know, we, we think that's exciting what we're doing. And, uh, you know, I, I think other institutions are, are trying to pick that up and, and figure out how to, how to make that happen in ways that, um, yeah, form the their ministerial students rather than just get them in, you know, get, get their money, get the, give them their degree and, and get some more in next, you know? Yeah. I think um, just, just a real quick comment on that. Deb. I think one of the things we sometimes mistake education for is the transfer of information when a true education is when a heart is opened and, and characters formed in mm -hmm. light of good information. And that's a big difference. And it's exactly the point you're trying to make, I think. That's good. That's good. Well, you've already mentioned, I was going to ask you where you see excellent theological training happening, but we're just going to go with the Bonhoeffer House on that. And <laughs> Southeastern's uh, commitment to both the excellence of in-person, uh, on-campus students, and uh, I, I just want to highlight, I love the Equip Centers, the, the, the fact that Southeastern has a commitment to uh, helping distance students be mentored by a local pastor and ideally be connected with other students in their area uh, even when they're not able to come to campus. You know, another part of this for us is we have you coming to Roanoke in May to teach an ethics hybrid. I'd love to just, you know, have you give a maybe a two-minute trailer for what this ethics class is, May 20th and 21st in person, uh, Friday. It'll be a Friday afternoon and then an all-day Saturday class. Uh, we'd love to have people in Southwest Virginia join us for this class. You can audit it. Uh, or you can take it for credit. And so uh, would you give us a kind of rundown of what we're going to cover, what this class is? Yeah, so uh, it's actually a lot of fun. I just did a hybrid uh, last week, and it was a blast. I had 40-some students come in, and uh, what they do is they watch some videos before and after the class, so they're getting some of the information on a kind of a, a digital platform on there. But just to the exact point we were making, 
those students typically come in and they're very hungry. They've been, they've given a, their time to kind of doing some reading. They've watched some videos, they come in and now they get to interact firsthand, not only with one another, but with a prof who's there to, they can challenge them with some of the things written in the book, maybe question some places they were unclear of that. And what's really fun about doing it in a video or in a, a live context is you've got two pretty full days where you're getting to know people pretty well, but you're also wrestling through a lot of the fun issues in our culture. So we'll, we'll talk not only about how to think biblically about doing Christian ethics in the culture, but why it's so important right now in the culture for us to be adept at handling ethical questions. The way I tell my students is that maybe 40 years ago, the primary questions that people were asking are things like, does God exist? And is the Bible reliable? Those questions are still in play and they're really important, but the culture's not asking them anymore. The culture is now asking, should I go to a wedding between two people of the same gender? Uh, is it okay that my uh, father wants to become my mother? You know, you're, you have a whole different kind of levels of questions. So what we want to do in an ethics class is wrestle with those, be honest about here's what's happening, and then build the biblical platform for us to be able to answer those in a way that is both truthful, completely committed to the truth, but winsome so that we can speak to the culture in a way where God's kindness draws us to repentance. And doing that together is, is crucial. Theology and ethics always needs to be done in community. Amen. Amen. If you're listening out there, that, that class is May 20 through 21st. You can actually jump on the Bonhoeffer House website. It's bonhoefferhouse.com slash ethics hybrid, or we'll uh, post that link in the show notes and you can fill out an interest form there if you want to come and uh, take it for credit through Southeastern or audit it. I also want to recommend Dr. Lederbach's new book, Ethics as Worship, which is uh, sitting right over there. On You know, it's still in my queue, though, because <laughs> I've been trying to finish up this paper for my PhD seminar, which I finally finished last night. So I'll be reading that in advance of our time together in May. And Dr. Lederbach, thank you so much for joining us here on The Hammer and Quill and talking about the future of theological training. The future is, it's, there, it's, it's not dark, it's bright, but it is complicated and challenging. And so uh, I'm looking forward to our partnership in the future, Dr. Lederbach, and uh, love our work with you and Southeastern. So thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll see you in May. Great. My pleasure, brother. What a great interview. What a fun time talking with Dr. Lederbach and uh, quite a few really interesting answers he gave to those questions. And so uh, I thought we'd close out our time, do our outro by sharing some highlights and uh, things that we found most interesting about that. So uh, who wants to kick it off first? Holly, why don't you kick it off? <laughs> okay. Um, I, just, I really loved it. I really loved it. Thank you so much. Dr. Lederbach. Um, I'm looking at my notes just to see, uh, you know, one thing that really stood out to me is just talking, him talking about how, um, theological education was educating for 20 years ago. Um, and how he, <laughs> that was really funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how, um, his encouragement is just twofold to be in the word daily and to be in culture regularly. Um, I really liked that in order to, in order to stay yes, relevant, relevant, in order to, uh, yeah, present an apologetic to the culture. Yeah. That I, that made me laugh out loud when he said <laughs> the joke is that 
we're training we're training students for 20 years ago <laughs> oh gosh you know he uh one of the things that i really appreciated about that was he renewed my <clears throat> of course i gave this away a little bit in our intro episode but he renewed my uh, he gave me a little bit of hope for the digital age um in that uh really i i think i still believe this i still believe that um uh not not to be intentionally uh uh anti-technology but i i really do believe that the best position for influence in the future may be much narrower and smaller and in person than than what a lot of the uh schools are envisioning but Man, the idea of the gospel and theological training being able to be broadcast into into nations and behind uh, uh, doors of hostility to the gospel because of the internet, because of what we're able to do uh, through you know YouTube, through videos, through audio. I mean, it, that that got me excited. I was like, yeah. all right, I'm not willing to destroy the internet. <laughs> what are you planning I, I meant, to? I meant, I meant, <laughs> do you have uh, that power? Give up. <laughs> I meant give up on the internet. Oh man, you just got yeah. re- recorded by Google or something. <laughs> like, you're, you're Watch out rich. on this guy. Yeah. Siri, keep an eye on him. Oh, now all of our phones are freaking yeah. out. Nope. We're okay. Yeah, not mine. Um on 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 that note, but perhaps on the negative side. What? Michael being <laughs> pessimistic about the internet? I did think I did think it was interesting. I can't remember the exact language he used, but he said he said something like um, technology is uh, is neutral. neutral. Um, technology is just just a tool, and it's it's really how we use that tool that uh, that makes it good or bad. Um, and I was I was curious to talk through whether or not y'all agree with that. Um, cause I think certainly there are certain forms of media that deform us, um, in and of themselves. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that you're right, Michael. And of course we've been, at least Michael and I have been influenced by Neil Postman and Marshall McLuhan. Um, and even, uh, David Gordon up at, uh, Grove city who wrote why Johnny can't preach. Mm, um, Yes which is really a pretty depressing book, but um, <laughs> worth reading. Um, and, and, uh, he can't the, preach because he can't read. And he can't, no, he can't preach because he can't write. And he, he can't write because he, he can't, can't read. read. And so, um, but really all of them being, I think there's like a whole field, social ecologists or um, yeah. media ecologists. Uh, the idea there being the media is the message so that um, if you're watching TV, you whether it's a good program or a bad program, you're already being formed by the media itself. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps we could see that most regu- most regularly right now, or most clearly in attention spans. Um, uh, so yeah, I but I don't I don't know that he necessarily was getting into you know I didn't press him on that so. Right. I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. Like, you know, I could go out and take a shovel and go dig a hole in my backyard and plant some bulbs, or I can take it and hit you over the head with it. And, he, you know, it, I think that's kind of what he meant, that like yeah. uh, the shovel is just a shovel, and it's how we use it that matters mm-hmm. the most. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know. I, I probably disagree, but I think he'd probably disagree too if, if he, right. you know, was, was pressed. Was pressed, yeah. 
Okay, and anything, Michael, that you found to be really encouraging, exciting? How about, how about you know, I don't know, we, we, the conversation about um, which really this kind of Socratic method of arguing mm-hmm. not to bludgeon each other, mm-hmm. but to work towards the truth? Yes. I, so, one, I just thought that was helpful and, and agree that, um, which we talked about this a little bit, in the introductory episode, but, but just any time that you can grow in your ability to disagree well, uh, and do it with Christ likeness and do it with the fruit of the spirit, um, is good practice <laughs> is good for us. Um, I don't know if this is exciting, but I found it interesting, uh, to hear, you know, Dr. Lederbach as a, as a Southern Baptist seminary professor, uh, kind of holding his own tribe uh, intellectually accountable mm. with the um, argument that, you know, the pro-life abortion argument, uh, my, my body or the, the abortion argument, my body, my choi- choice, and him saying as a, a pro-life advocate pressing against that argument and saying, well, no, there's actually a, another life that exists in the womb, um, and then and then tying that argument to the the mask argument of my body, my choice. Uh, I just I just found it I don't know refreshing to hear him, uh, kind of with intellectual integrity, yeah. tie those things together and say we need to we need to think well um, about the witness that we're giving when we make statements like this. We need to. Uh, we need to just think well in general about um, our 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 stances, our uh, our Christian witness. Um, yeah, I I just I, it surprised me in a in a good way. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, the idea there being um, abortion and wearing a mask aren't the same thing. But if we're basing the argument, um, if we're basing the argument on the same foundation. Uh, we need to think better in terms of our theology. Yeah. Uh, why is why am I saying this? What does God have to say about this? How does my body relate to God and His priorities? How does my body relate to my neighbors? How does my you know? So, yeah, I think that's great. We need to be theological training matters because we need to think well about our our arguments and the decisions we make with our bodies. Um, yeah. Anything else you guys thought was interesting or uh, helpful? in that that you want to bring up here in our outro i just really loved the interview and i'm excited to hear from our next guest for sure excellent excellent and so with that let's transition out here of uh our episode seven interview with uh uh dr mark Lederbach. and before we close this thing out michael would you tell us a little bit about one of the exciting things we have coming up which is dr Lederbach. In person, in Roanoke, in Virginia, house. in house, <laughs> teaching a class on ethics. Give us a few details. Yes, Dr. Lederbach is coming to Roanoke on May 20th and 21st for a, a hybrid course. So he's going to be here teaching an intensive class on ethics. Um, he just wrote a book called Ethics as Worship. Is that right? Ethics as Worship. Ethics right? as Worship. Um, so, so he'll be using that. Wow. So uh, Jesse is holding the is book so up large. to the mic for all of our <laughs> listeners to see. 
Can you hear how big it is? <laughs> <laughs> now you can. Wow. That did, I, honestly. Did you hear the weight behind that? <laughs> yeah. um, so Dr. Lederbach will be here in Roanoke, Virginia on May 20th and 21st. Um, we're very excited to have him uh, with us in person. Um, if you are interested in that class, you can go on bonhofferhouse.com slash ethics hybrid and register. There's just a little form to fill out. Um, it'll take you less than five minutes. Uh, and that will know, let us know that you're interested in the class. You can take it for credit through Southeastern or take it as an auditor um, if you're just interested in jumping in uh, on the class and, and learning a little bit um, without getting credit for it. So either way, we would love to have you join us. Um, and we're really grateful for Dr. Lederbach coming. Excellent. All right. That is going to be an exciting class. And the first of, we hope, um, a whole uh, regular rhythm of offering in-person classes like that over over the course of a weekend once a year. And so uh, I'm excited about it. And thank you, friendos, for tuning in to the Hammer and Quill Season 2, Episode 8, an interview with Mark Lederbach about the future of theological training. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow the Hammer and Quill on your favorite podcast app. Write us a quick review, letting us and others know how we're doing. If you have any questions or ideas for future podcasts, write in at info at bonhofferhouse.com and be on the lookout for our next episode, a conversation with our friend and frequent guest, Dr. Reese Bazant, in the next couple of weeks. Until then, peace, peace. I got more fire in my belly than not to. I'm happy as a clam and I think you forgot to. Tell me where my enemies are, cause when I look around, I know what to be found. I guess they're counting down every single hour to the minute, to the second. They have me second guessing if they even present. If they ever step up to me, I'ma give them all a gift. I'll say sorry in advance and I'll go and plead the fifth. And I don't need a fifth to hit the top of your wish list. Every time I pivot, I'ma leave your ankles twisted. Listen, I'm not feeling listless. This, that bliss, bliss I don't feel indifferent Already left the runway And I barely had assistance Went to my back Let the jokers react And the higher powers laughing with me They don't know what happened Up so high that your size is a fraction And what goes up must come down But now I'm really feeling like that paradigm shifted The feeling is addictive Anti-gravity, I pray it's never lifted And when I hit the top It tastes like poutine that you're kissing Listen, skip the clips I'm on a list Everything is going on without a hitch. Skip the clips. I'm on a list. Everything is going on without a hitch. Skip the clips. I'm on a list. Everything is going on without a hitch. Skip the clips. I'm on a list.